Dave up to continue uh, in our Luke series and bring us God's word this morning. Some of the guys in the room could relate to Andrew in that moment, understanding emotions. Oh, yes. There's a bit of nudging going on. You should go, my love. That is going to be a good morning. We should probably do it for the men afterwards as well. The men understanding emotions. That would be real helpful too. What's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, some of the men in the room are going, emotions. What are they? Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 19. You know, I really do sense in so many ways as we've gone through the worship today and as we've prayed and as we've spent time together that the Lord, I think in a way that only he can, has been preparing us for this message today. It's not like we sit together and discuss the whole morning of how we're going to weave it all together, but sometimes you're just aware the Lord's preparing us for something, I think. And and I think he's preparing us for this message. You know, since Luke 9, chapter 51... Jesus has been on one very long trip, making his way to Jerusalem, where he will give his life away as a ransom for many. And yet, just before entering into Jerusalem, with Jerusalem behind him, forming one wonderful backdrop, he he has one more thing for them, a parable. And it's this parable. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 19, verses 11, through to the end of verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your meaner has made ten meaners more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came to him, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here 
and slaughter them before me. Obviously, this is a significant text this morning that we're examining together. If you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Choice of Our Lives. And let's pray. Lord, your word is wonderful from start to end. And Lord, as we imagine you now and stand with you as you are about to enter into Jerusalem where you'll give your life away as a ransom for many. Lord, we stand around this parable with bated breath seeking to understand it. Oh Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, this is so significant in your words. Speak to our hearts. Open our eyes. Do what you can. Only you can. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, April the 20th, 1999, some 23 years ago now, a young girl by the name of Cassie Banal took a test that I think every one of us in the room would definitely want to pass. And yet none of us would really want to take. This is her story. April the 20th, 1999, started like any other school day in our house. At 5.45, Brad, my husband, left for work. And a little later, I got up to wake the kids. Getting teenagers out of bed is always a small battle, but that Tuesday was especially difficult. Cassie had stayed up the late night, uh, stayed up late the night before catching up on homework, and her books were all over the kitchen table. The cat's litter box needed attention, and we were already running late with breakfast. I remember trying not to lecture her about all the things that needed doing before she left for school. About 7.20, Chris kissed me goodbye and clattered down the stairs and out of the house. Cassie stopped at the door to put on her shoes, her beloved black velvet Doc Martens, which she wore rain or shine, even with dresses. She grabbed a backpack and headed after her brother. After she left, I leant over the banister to say goodbye like I always do. Bye, Cassie. I love you. Love you too, Mum. she mumbled back. Then she was gone through the backyard, over the fence, and across the soccer field to the high school, which is only a 100 yards away. I dressed, made myself a cup of coffee, locked up, and drove off to work. From what I've since been told, it was about 11.15 that morning when Cassie walked into the high school library, backpack on her shoulder, to do her latest homework assignment, another installment of Macbeth for English class. Her friend Crystal then told me what happened next. Sarah, Seth, and I had just gone over to the library to study, just like any other day. We had been there maybe five minutes when a teacher came running in, yelling that there were kids with guns in the hall. At first, we were like, it's a joke, a senior prank, Seth said. Relax, it's just paintballs. Then we heard the first shots, first down the hall, then coming closer and closer. Mrs. Nielsen was yelling at us to get under the tables, but no one listened. Then a kid came in and dropped to the floor. There was blood all over his shoulder. We got under our table. And Mrs. Nielsen was at the phone by now calling 911. Seth was holding me in his arms with his hand on my head because I was shaking so badly. And Sarah was huddled under there with us too, holding onto my legs. Then the two gunmen came into the library shooting and saying things like, we've been waiting to do this our whole lives and cheering after each and every shot. I couldn't see anything when those guys came up to Cassie. But I could recognize her voice. 
I could hear everything like it was right next to me. One of them asked her if she believed in God. She paused. Like she didn't know what she was going to answer. And then she said, yes. She must have been scared. But her voice didn't sound shaky. It was strong. Then they asked her why she believed in God. But never gave her a chance to respond. The killer laughed and pulled the trigger. On that day, Cassie took a test that all of us would want to pass. But let's be honest, none of us would want to take. But in that moment, she knew that she had a decision to make. What is her life going to be about? Who is she going to live for? Who is she going to stand for? When push comes to shove, what is she going to be about? And who is she going to be about? And what is her life going to be about? In that moment, she knew she had a decision to make, and she said yes. Well, my friends, as the sun now sets on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, what you realize through this parable is that we also have a decision to make. Because what we have right here in this text, I submit to you, is a conclusionary choice that we all have to make. A conclusionary choice in response to all Jesus is and what he stands for and what he's done for us. A conclusionary decision about what each and every one of us are going to do with it. And that's why this parable is here. See, on this journey, we have seen and heard some incredible things, have we not? We've heard Jesus teaching on legalism and the glories of grace. He's been taking the different priests on, the different Pharisees on, helping them see it's not about legalism, it's about grace. It is all by the grace and glories of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can be saved. We've heard a lot about the cost of discipleship and the fuel that it's going to take to really follow him. It's not going to be a jolly for Jesus. And so the only way we can fuel ourselves is to be like Mary in Luke chapter 10. A woman who sat at Jesus' feet, who plugged herself into the vine, and who prayed like Jesus, who's already taught us in these chapters the Lord's Prayer, and how we need to pray and depend on Him in all things. And it's the only way we're going to fuel ourselves for the Christian life. We've also heard in this journey what discipleship is going to look like. What it's going to look like for our treasures, what it's going to look like for our time, what it's going to look like for our hearts, and indeed the whole of our lives. And along this journey that Jesus has gone on from all the way through to Jerusalem, we've seen lives being totally transformed by Jesus Christ himself, have we not? People that are saying, in response to Jesus, I'm all in. In Luke chapter 10, we have 72 disciples. 72 disciples who he saved by grace, who have put their faith in Jesus. He sends about two by two to go and tell people about him. They come back ecstatic amazed all that Jesus has done in their lives and ecstatic about how they're telling people about Jesus and it's making a difference. We've seen a woman bent over double, a man who was born mute, a leper who was saved and healed by Jesus and gave his life then to worshiping the Lord. Just a few chapters ago, we interacted with blind Bartimaeus, a man who was lost in blindness and poverty but who Jesus saved by his grace and opened his eyes. And Bartimaeus rose and followed him. And then last week we saw Zacchaeus, a man who was lost in wealth and corruption, 
but who gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It totally impacted his life. He rose and followed Jesus for the remaining days of his life. But now as the dust begins to settle on this journey, and Jesus has Jerusalem just behind him, all eyes are now on you and me. You've seen the evidence. What are you now going to do with this endeavor? How are you going to respond to Jesus? How am I going to respond? What we are faced with here in this parable is a conclusionary choice that we all have to make. No one can escape it. So I have two points this morning. Number one, the parable explained. We're just going to walk through the parable together so it all makes sense and it is a wonderful parable. And then secondarily, the parable applied. And out of all the parables we've touched on in this gospel, I submit to you, this is the most important one to understand and make sure we apply. Number one then, the parable explained. See, Luke takes the time here to give us background to this parable, which is helpful for us to get our hand around what is really going on here. And the background he gives us is in verse 11. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So by way of background, it's helpful and important to understand that messianic expectations or kingdom expectations, if you will, had now reached fever pitch among Jesus' followers. Jesus' followers believed that as soon as Jesus enters Jerusalem, That will trigger the kingdom of God. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that Jesus appropriately was the son of David. But this is where they got it wrong. They thought because he's the Messiah, he will enter into Jerusalem through his supernatural power. He will overthrow the Romans. He will take his seat on the throne of David. And at that moment, he will begin to rule and reign over Jerusalem and Judea. And there will be a blessing to the nations by him taking his seat. That is all their understanding. That's why they're so excited about what's taking place. They are buzzed that he's about to enter Jerusalem. They can see people lining the streets all the way from Jericho to Jerusalem. Everybody's making their way to Jerusalem. It's the Passover in just a few days' time. There's a great pilgrimage taking place, and they are convinced this is the Messiah. He's going to overthrow the Romans. Let's do this. Do you remember? That's why James and John say, hey, when you get there, can I sit at your right? Can I sit at your left? They honestly think that Jesus is going to take some type of throne to bring in his kingdom there and then earthly throne and rule from there. Well, Jesus has already explained to them many times by now um, that that ain't going to be the way it's going to go. That when he goes to Jerusalem, he will indeed usher in a kingdom, but it won't come by taking an earthly throne. It will come by me giving my life away as a ransom for many. They just can't get their heads around that. That doesn't make sense to them. So they ignore that. But right here, before Jesus enters Jerusalem, he wants to once again inform their expectations and prepare their hearts for what is to come, not only for him, but for them as well. And so he gives them this parable. And in verse 12, the parable begins. Look at with me. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. All right, well, the nobleman in this story, so we're clear, is Jesus. 
The nobleman is Jesus himself. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the image of the invisible God. For in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. The nobleman is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he has indeed come from from a far off country. Why? To receive for himself a kingdom of his own. Jesus did indeed descend from the right hand of the Father to come after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Why? To win for himself a kingdom. To buy us back again to the kingdom of God. To pay the price. That's what his life and death and resurrection is all about. He is winning and earning the kingdom. That he tells us in Luke chapter 13 will start small. It'll start like a mustard seed. But over time, it will grow and grow and grow and house all the nations of the earth in its branches. People from every tribe and language and nation will come into this great kingdom. But it's going to take time. But he tells us that this nobleman, namely himself, who has come from a far off country to establish a kingdom that will take time, will one day return. He will return. He's coming back. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, This agreement regarding the sure return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead comes from the overwhelming evidence of Scripture. There are 260 chapters of Scripture in the New Testament, and Christ's return is mentioned no less than 318 times in those chapters. Statistically, therefore, one verse in 25 mentions the Lord's return and the glorious reality that Jesus is coming back. Amen? Jesus is coming back. The nobleman has established his kingdom. He's won the kingdom through his life, death, and resurrection. He is one day coming back. He will indeed return. And knowing that that day is coming, to each and every one of his followers, he gives us a divine opportunity. Something to do before he comes back. And that's what verse 13 starts talking to us about. Look at, look with it, look at it with me. He says, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So Jesus, as the nobleman, has entrusted something to his servants. And he says, listen, I want you to engage with this and do business with this until I return. And mina, just so we're clear what's going on here, is about 100 days wages um, at this time. It's 100 days wages for a laborer. What he's effectively given them is three months' salary. It's not a huge amount, but it's a significant amount. But what's interesting in the story, and you have to understand it's obviously a metaphor for something, is that Jesus, this nobleman, has given all of his servants exactly the same thing. An identical thing. He's given them one mina. He's given them all the same amount. And he's given them all the same amount because it is a metaphor for the same opportunity. The same opportunity to do what? Well, the same opportunity to live for the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. You see, he has called our name by his grace. We just saw that with Zacchaeus, did we not? He is the one that initiated all. He's called your name. He's brought you forth to serve him and know him and live for him. 
And as a profound opportunity, as a divine opportunity, having called your name and having seen you respond in faith, he's then given you a gift of Amina, an opportunity to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. As soon as we get to chapter 4, having surveyed the glories of the gospel in chapter 1, 2, and 3, we get to chapter 4, and Paul exhorts us, Therefore, live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. Live in a manner all out for Jesus. Know the gospel. Know it in your lives. Apply it in your lives. Proclaim it to everybody who will listen. As Jesus says here, go and engage in business until I come. Live all out for me. See, this is very different than to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, which this one can often get confused with. They're two very different things. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is all about how God gives us different gifts and abilities and how we're going to be accountable to use our different gifts and abilities. This isn't about gifts and abilities. This is about one opportunity that he's giving you to live all out for Jesus. He's called your name. He knows your frame. And now he wants you to come and serve him. Know the gospel and apply the gospel. And proclaim the gospel, the deposit that you have inherited by the glories of what he's done for you. He's called your name and now he wants you to serve him. To be a follower. Just like all the other people are as we illustrated all the way through this journey. Well, not everybody is going to be a big fan of this and not everybody is a fan of Jesus. And we see that in verse 14 when Jesus addresses the reality that he will have enemies. Verse 14, we read, but his citizens hated him, this nobleman, and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. See, not everybody is going to be a fan of following Jesus. Not everybody's going to be a fan of Jesus, full stop. And he makes that very clear here when he talks about what his enemies will do to him. You see, to help us understand this, this would have pinged to like to these initial hearers, but it doesn't to us in the same way. But he's using a certain phrase and a certain wording that really would have invoked in all the followers' minds at this point what is on the front page of the political times. Because what is on the front page of the political times at this time is the story of Archelaus. Let me explain who Archelaus is. Achaelus was the, Achaelus's father was King Herod the Great. Many of us will have heard of him. You hear about him in Matthew 2. He's the king at the time over Judea. When Jesus is born, he's the king. Well, sometime in Jesus' life, he has died. And so his son, Achaelus, has been left Judea and his kingdom and the title of king. But when he tries to inherit it and actually take it and make it his own, the people of God, the Jews, they absolutely detest him. They reject him. And so they send a whole group of delegates all the way to Rome to speak to Caesar, to say, Caesar, please, anybody else but him, please don't make him king. It says that about 200 people went up. And when they got there, there was about, they were joined by about 8,000 in Rome, all complaining, please, not him. And Caesar actually listened to them and he made it possible for Archelaus to actually still oversee the kingdom of Judea, but he wouldn't actually call him king. He wouldn't give him that title. He said, you're going to need to earn it. And Archelaus actually never did earn it. He was rejected and despised by the citizens of God. He was rejected by the people of Judea. Well, in the way this is written, what Jesus is trying to help us see is in the same way the people rejected Archelaus, they will reject me. 
These citizens won't want me either. They won't want to follow me. But of course the horror in that is Jesus is no Archelaus. He is the king. But he knows. When this nobleman gets into Jerusalem. Reject me they will. And of course as we know. Later on in the story that's exactly what happens isn't it. And you see that so clearly in particular at the cross. Because he is totally rejected. By his very own. In John 19 verses 14 to 16. Just listen to the rejection of Christ. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews. Behold your God. Sorry. He said to the Jews. Behold your king. They cried out. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Just a few verses on in verse 19. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, no, do not write the king of the Jews. But rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. What Pilate was doing in that moment, in all reality, was declaring the divine reality. He is the king of the Jews. Jesus was the king of kings and lord of lords. But as he hangs there at Calvary on the cross, he is being completely and utterly rejected by his very own. And before he even gets to Jerusalem, as we read here, he knows what's coming. Before he even arrives in Jerusalem, he knows what is going to take place. And yet in mercy and grace and love, he kept moving forward. Isn't that amazing? He kept going. You know, I was thinking this week about how much I hate the dentist. I hate it. It's horrible. And there have been numerous times where, you know, you get those texts from the dentist saying, if you miss your appointment, you're going to get a $50 charge. I take it. Because <laughs> I get halfway and then I start panicking. And I'm like, I'm so fearful. And then I was like, I can't believe you. you didn't go. I'm like, I couldn't go. I couldn't go. I'm just so fearful. Why? Because I know what's going to happen there. Drills. And that's a dentist. Jesus knew as he made his way to Jerusalem, he's going to be nailed to a cross. And he was going to be whipped and beaten. His father would turn his face away. Aren't you glad he kept going? It was there that he would give his life away as a ransom for many. It is there that he would die in our places. It was there that he would make it possible for you and for me to enter into the kingdom of God. And it is there that he would purchase your life with a price. Namely, Calvary. There were many that would hate that reality, that wouldn't stand for that reality, that loved to see him crucified. There was others that really did begin to love Jesus. They knew he had called them. 
They were so sad and sorrowful when he was crucified. In fact, they were in totally disarray. And we're numbered among them, are we not? People who really love Jesus. And so each and every one that loves him, he says, hey, I got a gift for you. Come here. Prior to my return, I give you a gift of Amina. An opportunity of a life to live for me. An opportunity to use your gifts and your money and your talents in your life to live for my glory. I give you Amina. And what we then discover in God's profound grace is when Jesus does return, he will settle all those accounts. Look with me at verse 15. It says, when, when he returned, having received the kingdom, so it's talking post, his death and resurrection and ascension and then return. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. He's talking now then about his return, that day when he will judge the living and the dead, and he will see how we got on. Well, now we listen very intently to the interviews that he is doing on that day with three servants in particular. First up, in verse 16 through 19, we have the first two servants, and here's what happens. It says, The first came before him, saying, Lord, your meaner has made ten meaners more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your meaner has made five meaners. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. The first and second servant then on that last day, they stand before Jesus and they're like, listen, you're not going to believe this. But your meaner has bared some fruit. The first guy comes in, it is a thousand percent increase on the investment that the the gospel has deposited in his life. The second guy comes in, it is a 500% increase on the deposit that was inherited into his life. These brothers have borne fruit in their lives. And they are totally humble about it, appropriately, as they recognize, listen to the phrase, Lord, your meaner has made. What these men have done is they have given their lives, as Riley, I thought, taught us so well at retreat, They've given their lives to plugging into the vine. They've understood, I can't bear fruit by myself, so I'm going to plug into Jesus each and every day of my life, and his power is going to flow through me. And oh my gosh, look, your power, your meaning is bearing fruit in other people's lives. I'm plugging into you, and you're doing things through me. It is a scandal of your grace. But as I stand before you now, there has been fruit out of my life because you have been faithful to me. And you have been kind through me. Or Jesus in that moment makes it clear, listen, well done. And he gives them astounding gifts in response. He gives the first guy ten cities to oversee. He gives the second guy five cities to oversee. What exactly does that mean? I have no idea. But clearly it's a good thing. Clearly, when we are responsible in this life, when we get into the heavenly realms, there are rewards for people who have done well. See, make no mistake, the greatest privilege of these servants' lives was seeing Jesus, was being with Jesus. It was going to heaven and being with Jesus. That's the greatest thing of all. But Jesus wants to remind them, listen, that is great and it will be good. But I also want you to understand, because of the way you lived your life here, there will be eternal reward there. He wants us to know it. He wants us to enjoy it. He wants us to be motivated by it, by his grace and for his glory. You see, these men, 
As Jim Elliot once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These men have lived that out to the full. I'm just all in. Jesus, you called my name. I was lost. I was far from you. You called my name. You gave me a gift of Amina and I've given my life to try and invest it. I've given my life to try and use this. I've given my life to seek to serve you. And I plug myself into you each and every day. And it's born fruit. It's incredible. It's your work. And he says, yeah, and I'm going to reward you for it. That's a scandal. How can you reward me? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. These men understood he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. They didn't live for this day. They lived for that day. And their whole lives were about that day. Not so the third individual. Because for the third individual, something else is about to take place. Look with me at verse 20 to 23. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put your money in the bank? And by coming, I might have collected it with interest. You know, the judgment seat of Jesus on that last day, it is not without tragedy. And we must understand that. I'm not trying to deliberately scare anybody. I'm just trying to be faithful. These are the words of Jesus to us. Here we have a man who has made no gain at all on his mina. The opportunity to live for Christ, what has he done? He's wrapped it in a handkerchief and he's hid it. Presumably then just getting on with his life in some other way. But this opportunity is wrapped in a handkerchief and he has it. He has buried the gospel in his life. He has squandered the opportunity. And why has he done it? Well, because evidently, as you read the text, this man doesn't actually know Jesus at all. I mean, think about this man's statements. They are slanderous to every degree. They are false in every degree. He calls Jesus a severe man. This is Jesus, who is gentle and lowly. He calls him a severe man. The word is osteros. It is the word for strict and exacting. It, he's basically saying, Jesus, you're like a king that tries to get blood out of a stone. He's it calling him that he's severe. He then accuses Jesus of taking what he did not own and reaping what he did not sow. He's saying basically, you're a severe man and you're a crook. You do nothing. It's all on us. And then you just want to take the spoils. Clearly, here is a man, listen, that does not truly know Jesus. Maybe he's been to church once in a while. Maybe on his annual census, he clicks Christian. Maybe even he's come to group every now and again. But in reality, he does not know Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus. He's not living for Jesus. There's no fruit. He has buried his opportunity. So he is the epitome of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Maybe he came to church sometimes. Maybe he's a really nice person. Maybe even helped out. He did not know Jesus. And Jesus did not know him. This is what happens to him in verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The crowd are really disappointed. They're like, whoa, whoa, listen, you know, I take, get it that you're taking it off him, and we'll get to that in a moment, but why, why to the rich guy, you know? And he's like, well, it's just more blessing. It's more blessing for the guy that really lived for me. It's the way it's going to be. It's the way the kingdom works. But the point to this man is that even what he has, you squandered it. So it's going to be taken away from you. It's going to be removed from you. Why? Well, because away from me. I never knew you. And Jesus then in verse 27 makes it vividly clear what does indeed happen to people that he never knew. People that never lived for him. People that may have heard the gospel but never responded to the gospel. Never truly embraced him as Lord and Savior. He says this in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here. And slaughter them before me. See, this parable finishes with a frightening and breathtaking reality. It is apocalyptic in nature, so he's not literally saying, okay, bring them here and I'll just slaughter them. He's not saying that. He's saying, listen, on that last day, for all those that hate him, that didn't choose to live for him, that's what will happen. And he's not a literal slaughtering. He's talking about the realities of hell. The horrors of what awaits people when they lived as enemies of God. A punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. See, sometimes I think we can hear that and just think it sounds so severe. But it sounds so severe because we fail to recognize who Jesus really is and who we really are. On that day, it will make so much more sense. And his enemies will be punished. And what that gives us, what that leaves us with, my friends, is a conclusionary choice that I think we all have to make. Indeed, the conclusionary choice of our lives. What are we going to do with this mina? What are we going to do with the opportunity that Jesus is giving to us, having called our name and given us the opportunity to live for him? What are we going to do with it? Well, that's my final point, just by conclusion, number two, the parable applied. How do we respond to this parable? Jesus is just about to enter Jerusalem where he's going to give his life away as a ransom for many. How are we meant to respond to this conclusionary parable? Well, two ways. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you'll be very aware that your journey with Jesus in all reality has never even begun. You're not even on the map yet. You're not even walking with the Lord. Maybe your face has appeared in the crowd at different points, just like many in the crowd would with Jesus. Your face has appeared, but your name has never been mentioned. You have never stepped forward. You've never made a decision to follow him. 
Well, my friends, I want to encourage you, today is a great day for it all to begin. (laughs) Maybe today is the day that he is calling your name just like he did Zacchaeus. And maybe that's exactly why he has you here. Zacchaeus was just going about his day, cracking on with his day, fancy the sight of Jesus. And yet what you realize as the story goes on is that moment was, was ordained by God before even the foundation of the earth. Maybe the Lord has you here. You just think you're hanging out with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or just coming with a friend. But actually, he has you here in his divine sovereignty to call your name and save you. Truth is, that's how we all got here too. <laughs> We're running away from him. And yet at some point you're aware, he's calling my name. He's drawing me into his family and it starts to become amazing to you. In a way it simply wasn't just moments before. Listen, this parable is helping you understand that he came for you. He's just about to enter into Jerusalem for you. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus Christ was going to Calvary saying all the time, listen, put your faith in me. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that I rose again, then you will be saved. It's the claim all the way through scripture. It's the storyline of this entire book. How Jesus came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. To save you by his grace. By giving his life away on the cross as your substitute. How do you receive that gift? Well, by putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. My friends, I want to encourage you. The scene at the end of this parable where people are being slaughtered before the Lord is a realistic scene. But what he's trying to do all the time is help you see, I don't want that for you. And that's why I came. Oh, my friends, put your faith in him today as your Lord and Savior. And know what it is to enter into the kingdom of God. To be forgiven. And to be adopted into the family of God. And to know for sure, heaven is your home. This is not just a story. It's a reality. Make your choice wisely. Maybe though you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which would be most of you. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you in this regard. Do all you can. Each and every day, to not take your eyes off the prize. See, in all reality, it's so easy and can be so simple to get distracted, can't it? We can get distracted by so many things. We are a distractible people, are we not? Riley and I, just a few months ago when we were going to Canberra, we are so busy talking that I completely missed the turn for Canberra. My watch is buzzing to communicate to me that something's gone wrong. Siri is panicking. We're completely ignoring it because we're just driving on. We are distracted with conversation. We are a distractible people. Well, I am. But you know, for all of us as Christians, we can get distracted by many things, can we not? Many things that distract us away from the prize. The prize of living for Jesus and living for that last day. We can get distracted away by the world. The world's values, the world's comforts, the world's passions. 
We can so easily find ourselves sucked in to all the things that I think I have to have to be satisfied and all the things I need to be secure. And before you know it, you're like, you're over in the corner and you're like, how did I even get here? Well, you got here because you got distracted. Pulled in by the world. Pulled in by its values and its passions that you started to see with glittering lights as if it's a fruit machine. And you start to walk towards it like a moth to a light. I've done it. It's so easy to get distracted by busyness as well, isn't it? I mean, Sydney is so busy. There's so many things that make it busy. And I get that. And listen, there's no point in saying, oh, it's not going to change. It's, it's not, as in, it's going to change. It's never going to change. You're just going to go from one season to the next. Don't think, oh, this is just a season of busyness. <laughs> you can have another one straight after. And then another one again. And you'll be speaking to people when they're retired. And they'll say, I'm very busy. <laughs> it's life. Here's the challenge. The lie that we can make is I'm just so busy at the minute, but it's going to change. And the reason why I'm not like Mary sitting at Jesus' feet right now is because I'm busy. If you take that lie, you will never be sitting at Jesus' feet. You'll always be too busy for it. Jesus makes it very clear that it's going to cost to follow him and it's not going to be easy. It's going to involve taking up our cross and following him. And so the the key text in some ways comes in Luke 10 when we realize if we're going to win on this journey, we've got to be like Mary. We've got to be sitting at his feet, enjoying him, and now we serve him. Okay, again today, sitting at his feet, enjoying him, now we serve him. The next day, sitting at his feet. If you don't do the first bit, you're going to be exhausted by Wednesday. Dry by Thursday, by Friday you've lost the will to live. Distracted. Pulled away. And then we say, oh, the world's just so busy. No, no, no. The issue isn't the world. It's our heart that is determined that this is more important than that. We've got to sit at Jesus' feet. It's what John 15 is all about. Plug into the vine. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Sit at his feet. Yeah, we get distracted, don't we? Distracted away, being real busy. And then we can get distracted away by assumption of time. We start to think, oh, today or tomorrow I'll do this and that. I'll sort that out when I get back from my holidays. Uh Uh-huh. What if you're not going to return from your holidays? What if your time's up? Listen, how would you live different if you knew Jesus was coming back August the 14th, next year. We've all got one year left. How would you live different? We need to start thinking and engaging. Because he is coming back. And maybe we shouldn't just assume that we've got time and time and time and time. Maybe our time is running short. Listen, I want to encourage you then for all believers in the room. Listen, do all you can to not take your eyes off the prize. And if in all honesty, as you assess yourself this morning, you realize, I think I have taken my eyes off the prize. Then how kind of the Lord to gently address you this morning. And I want to encourage you, even as we sing this last song this morning, just ask for the Lord's forgiveness in your heart. And remake a decision in your heart. Lord, help me not to get distracted. I want to live for you. We must not get distracted, my friends. It's so important that we keep our eyes on the prize. That means spending time in his word. It means spending time at his feet in prayer. It means coming to church. Why? Because that's where we spur one another on. It's where we hear the word of God communicated. It's why we need to go to groups. 
Because it's there that we're challenged to live for Christ. That's what it all means to not take my eyes off the prize because each and every day I'm going to get distracted. So I need to find time each and every week to make sure I'm plugging in so I don't get distracted. In April the 20th, 1999, Cassie Bernal made her choice. She made the choice of her life. And she decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. My friends, I want to encourage you in the many moments of our lives, may we do the same. May we decide to follow Jesus. No turning back. Let's pray. Lord, as you are about to enter Jerusalem in this scene, Lord, I thank you for giving this wise and hard-hitting parable to our lives. Lord, this is surely a moment where we see our faces in the crowd as you address us. Holy Spirit, I pray that, and I thank you that I believe you have been doing a work in our hearts this morning. And I pray that that hard work would continue. Lord, that we would have increased desire to say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Why? Because you called our names. Out of millions lost, you called our names. And then you gave us a gift, a gift of Amina. With the attachment, hey, I'm coming back. Oh Lord, help us not to be distracted. Help us to run hard for you. Lord, by ourselves, this is impossible. So I pray you'd help us. You would come into our hearts afresh and help us to keep our eyes on the prize. That we may run for you. And we did all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We do indeed have a, a choice before us to follow him.